1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm
0: Andrew Henderson, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast.
1: I never thought seriously about leaving the United States. Katie and I have always had everything we needed Until a few years ago, that is. And no, it wasn't the politics, although that entered my mind. In the end, it was two things. One, the cold weather. I'm tired of Chicago winters. Two, I tend to feel most alive, most myself, when we are in Mexico. Maybe it's the people, or nature, or just the pace of life. What it's not for us is the economics. Although, who doesn't want to have a lower cost of living? never planned on becoming a nomad, flitting around the globe, nor what my guest today would call a nomad capitalist. But maybe he has a point. Why not go where you're treated well, maybe pay a little less taxes or a lot, and build a business or even a well-diversified life? Andrew Henderson lives by five magic words. Go where you're treated best. He is the managing partner of Nomad Capitalist, which helps people find the best places to live, bank, invest, incorporate, start a business, hire, date, and more. After spending a decade visiting more than 100 countries and living in a dozen of them, Andrew has become an expert on the growing field of global citizenship. He's the author of Nomad Capitalist. Andrew Henderson, welcome to Earn and Invest. I want to go back to the moment that you are walking into the U.S. Embassy in Georgia. And I'm not talking about the state of Georgia. I'm talking about the country. And you were about to renounce your U.S. citizenship. Tell me what was going through your head at the time.
0: I look at it as a breakup that you've had a long-term relationship. You've had the highs. You have the lows. And every time you think about ending the relationship, you think, is this the right thing? It's comfortable. Um, You have reasons to defend the relationship. You have... Kind of the knee-jerk reactions to defend the relationship, but at the end of the day, you feel like this is not a relationship that I belong in. And so, yeah, it's been a little over five years when I walked into the U.S. Embassy. I had thought about it numerous times. In fact, I was thinking about thinking about it this morning Uh, when I was 13 years old. My father was, you know, he would bring home the Wall Street Journal and he'd read various things, and he told me, "Oh, U.S. citizens have to pay tax no matter where they live, but you can make $62,000. This is like the late '90s. You can make $62,000 a year," and I said, "Dad." I want to do better than make (laughs) $62,000. And he he did better than making $62,000. He was a successful guy, but he just figured, hey, you know, what's so bad about it? And I remember that kind of offended me. I was always interested in traveling. I always wanted to travel the world. I wanted to live overseas from when I was 15 years old. And I I just didn't feel aligned with the U.S. And when I started going other places, I felt more aligned. And so after years of living in those other places, I finally felt enough aligned as I walked in that day to where – uh, I have some misgivings about the u s, the policies, some of the politicians, some of the people. But I feel like some of the anger and animosity of that that caused me to leave, and you realize isn't a good reason to leave had had gone, had left the system to where it was time to make a rational decision where you release what doesn't belong to you and you feel comfortable rather than doing it out of anger. And that's what I felt. And I remember when I walked out about half an hour later. It felt exactly like ending the relationship that you know has to end. You feel a little sad about it, but you walk out and you know ultimately you did the right thing.
1: So if we're going to continue the metaphor with the relationship, usually after a relationship ends, you tend to go back in your mind and really tear it apart and say, what worked? What didn't? Why did I get to this point? Yeah. Go back to childhood a little bit, because this seems like this was deeply ingrained in who you are. What do you think about the yeah. U.S. just didn't fit you?
0: I always wanted to travel. I felt people in the US, there's a certain insularity. I mean, I feel like people, you know, when you start traveling, you go back and you talk to folks and they don't really understand the things that not only would someone, let's say I have friends from Egypt or other countries like that, that they know they've got to get visas to go a lot of places.
1: Whenever we hire
0: someone from the West, they ask, why don't you have your live events? We had 500 people last year in Mexico. Why don't you do that? in the United States. I said, because almost none of our staff could go without getting a visa. And they're like, no, 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 but you need to, that's to live. You, you, you're just going. I'm like, no, no, no. Why do you think you don't see a million Bangladeshis in your neighborhood in the United States? Because they need visas. And it's hard. And so I just kind of feel like there's this thing where once you start traveling, it's kind of hard to go back to this kind of isolated country. I don't agree with the politics. I mean, for me, I'm a pretty libertarian guy. And so a lot of people don't understand why wouldn't you like Trump? Well, America first, I mean, America first. I think this—the United States always puts itself first. He makes some good points. You're paying for Germany and NATO, blah 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 blah. But you know, I looked at that as a guy like me who wants to live overseas. I'm already filing all the tax returns. I'm already doing all the legwork. It's going to be even worse. He's going to come down on people like me like a ton of bricks. And I wasn't entirely wrong. It wasn't Barack Obama or or. Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton who made life for expats more difficult, it was Donald Trump. And I predicted that as I remember sitting here in Malaysia watching him get inaugurated. An I just I, I, I just think that the people, there's some great people, but by and large, people just aren't that educated. They're not that well-traveled. I sat next to someone many years ago. I'm going to Oslo. Where are you going, Oslo? North New Jersey? <laughs> like, you know, I mean, and is that a reason to give up your citizenship? No, it just didn't gel with me. Probably there was some reasons on the social side. I mean, I've never, you know, I I think I'm an interesting person. I've I've never had more difficulty meeting people in the United States. I meet people overseas. It's much easier. Women, friends, what have you. And I just think it was difficult. And probably there was some dynamics of the family. The family gave me permission to not live where they lived. It was not like stick around and take care of us. It was like, hey, you want to go somewhere else? Go ahead. We don't need to talk every week. (laughs) Very Protestant, like, you know. You know, we're not living together. What do you want?
1: (laughs) So let's talk about this a little bit. You knew, I think, at a fairly young age, this need to get out, this feeling that maybe the U.S. didn't quite feel like you. Did you start building your career with that mind? Like when you're looking at high school and college, you're like, I need to build some type of business or career path that'll allow me to travel the world.
0: I feel like probably starting at 16 or 17, like a lot of young men probably got lost somewhere. And so I got off. I kept some of those thoughts. but you know I, I didn't put as much effort in in high school. Didn't really want to go to university, but felt compelled because you know all my friends were going to great universities. They were all very smart. and I, I'll go somewhere, never really get into university, barely attended, ended up leaving, ended up starting a business. I think it had to hit me for real. Number one, to make enough money to be able to travel and say, "This actually is what I want." And number two, to end up paying a bunch of tax when you start making money and saying, this is pretty bad. Because I was a libertarian, you know, as a kid, 15 years old, it's nice in theory. Oh, we should have lower taxes. Another thing, you're sending $50,000 to the government and it hurts. And you're saying, what am I getting for this? And so I think it all started to come together in my early 20s. I started traveling. I had a great interest in frontier markets, places like Cambodia, but I also, you know, explored a lot of Europe. And so I think the more you did it, you know, from early 20s, the more I realized this was for me. But I think there was probably a period where I did get off track and I had to to learn the lesson for real rather than just learn the lesson theoretically. I, I look at these guys, we've had clients who are 21, 22, they're making millions of dollars. And I say, that's fantastic. I think I I kind of missed a few years there that I should have been more productive.
1: What do you think got you back on track? Was it your first major travel or was there something that caused it really to click in your head and you said, wait, wait, I, I'm, I'm getting away from what I need to be doing?
0: I think to some extent I probably became successful in business, you know, 22, 23, I'd started something and I started making, you know, decent money, six figures, whatever. And and, and what, you know, there was a certain amount of luck and just kind of like, I'm going to do this and it just kind of worked out. And the more things work out, the more you kind of make note of, oh, this is what worked. And the more you kind of organize your life, when you're just starting, there's kind of a chaos to it. And as it got more and more organized, I think I felt more and more in touch with myself. You know, going to university and not really wanting to go to university, it just felt maybe out of order. And I didn't put in the effort. And there was something kind of missing. But when I got, when I started to click and started to make money, it's like, yeah, this is what to do. Let me refine this.
1: Let's talk about when it started to click in your head, this idea of the Nomad Capitalist. So this is the name of your Mm. business. It's the book you wrote. It's really how you fashioned your life and now help other people live. When did you start realizing, oh, wait, this is not just something kind of I can do, but other people need help figuring this out?
0: I got the website Nomad Capitalist. As I was selling my last business, anyway, I said a couple of different things. I had a major business and I'd started a couple other smaller projects and I was selling one of those smaller projects. And I said, you know what? I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to take some money that I have and I'm going to make some investments. Maybe I'll start some ventures. Maybe I'll you know, write some small checks to invest in startups in some of these places that are you know, the, the road less traveled, the Cambodias of the world, that kind of place, Eastern Europe. Um, that was what I was interested in. And I said, you know, uh, actually I wanted to do a show like yours. And I figured, Hey, the best way to interview some of these big figures that will help me is I'll do a show. And my background was in broadcasting. I, I, you know, put I I sold radio time. Basically we were a market maker for radio infomercial time. And so I knew all these people and I found this station in New York. Hey, will you run this show on Sunday? I'm going to make a one hour podcast. Will you run it in New York? Guy in Los Angeles, will you run it in Los Angeles? And I went out and tried to get people on my show. And so I just put out content, I wrote a blog, I wrote an article every day, I did the podcast, I just put out a ton of content as I'm traveling around the world, as I'm meeting people, CEOs of banks and investors and everything else. And people just started reaching out. And it kind of took a, a, a life of its own. And I think I probably was telling the story about why I left. There was probably some confusion about why I left. I think probably I, I, I told myself it was more about finance, because I was not self-aware enough back all those years ago to realize there was some some deep hurts that you know propelled this. And so I was probably doing things differently than someone who is a bit more well-adjusted would do if they're moving, just moving to Dubai and want to make friends and have a nice life. You know, I just put out what I'm doing and people started being interested in what I said. Hey, you know, who wants some help? People responded. And I think the more we did that, the more we learned about what works and what doesn't work. And the more, you know, I invested back into my own personal passports and residences and bank accounts. And we just uh, it snowballed from there.
1: I like this idea how you kind of said in the beginning, you convinced yourself it was really all about finances. And as you grew into the idea, you realized that it was partially finances, but a lot more. Explain for people what a nomad capitalist is. And you use the word capitalist there, but I always get the feeling like it's much broader than just what we do with our money or how we build businesses.
0: I think it's nomad which is someone who's constantly on the go. Now I I always said you can be a nomad capitalist and you can live in one place, but it's about my five magic words go where you're treated best. What's the best place? And so for me it was kind of hard to choose. I think I've probably figured out all the cities that I would like to spend time in at this point. And now I'm starting to really narrow down and probably going to focus on on two or three main ones. But I liked a little bit of different places. And so for me, it was being kind of nomadic. For others, it might be, I'm a nomad, but I just live in a different country. I live in Dubai full-time. I live here in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia full-time. I live in, you know, whatever. I have one base, two bases. One guy had eight different bases. He wanted to spend six weeks in eight different places. And so you are moving to some extent, but you are a capitalist, you know, you're not, uh, and, and, and there's no judgment here, but you're not someone who wants to go to Bali and Figure out, I need $2,000 a month to live and then reverse engineer it from there. How much, how little do I need to work to make $2,000 to live and drink smoothies and ride a bicycle and Instagram with orangutans? For me, it's about building businesses. And and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not my thing. I like to work, I like to build businesses, I like to invest. I'm not as good of an investor as I am as an entrepreneur, but I find opportunities around the world. And so it's both of those things. You are. In the world, again, whether you're in Dubai and you travel a little bit or whether you're always traveling and you're seeing opportunities to make money and to better society with your investments and with your businesses, it's those two things put together.
1: I like this idea of go where you're treated best. And maybe this speaks to the nomadic part of it. Part of the problem with that, right, is that you're treated best in different ways in different places, right? So one place may have the best weather. Another place may have the best banking. Another place may have the best atmosphere to start a startup talk about that a little bit because for you at least when you began this journey you really were very nomadic right you were traveling quite a bit
0: yes all the time non-stop living out of a suitcase for some time then got an apartment where I'm at now in Kuala Lumpur Malaysia and I was just kind of traveling from there and ultimately decided you know as you hired people around the world and opened offices and did business and you know got different residence permits and citizenships by buying real estate around the world hey you know I'll buy a house in colombia and i'll get residents there and i'll pop in there every once in a while so the network expanded and so did the lifestyle but yeah i mean if we go back to the relationship example if you're going to be in a marriage it better be a great marriage where every need you have is satisfied and let's be honest i don't think most people have that now you know what what my Idea is is that you know the best place to bank probably for a, a an entrepreneur who is not looking for hoity toity banking doesn't want to overpay the best place is probably Singapore. Now I don't think you should live in Singapore because if you can live anywhere you want, number one, are you going to hire Singaporeans? There's a lot of cultures, the time zone's bad if you're dealing with North Americans. Is the culture entirely aligned? You can probably hire people for somewhere you know for, for a lower price or you know Europeans that you know maybe are more culturally fit at the same price. You know, you're going to buy a house. I have a house here, and it costs less than a million dollars. Big, beautiful, you know, apartment. That in Singapore probably is fifteen million dollars in the same amazing location. So, I just, why I don't want to be, you know, a value investor. I don't want to waste money. So, Singapore is a great place to bank. It's a great place potentially if you're buying dividend stocks. You know, you're buying REITs. You know, you have a good tax, uh, very you know, zero tax rate on things like dividends. It's a good place to park your wealth. And so I came up with, you know, the global citizen sandwich. Maybe I'll live in Kuala Lumpur. It's affordable, but it's very developed, or pretty well developed. I'll keep my wealth in, in Singapore and I'll make, you know, smaller frontier investments in a place like Cambodia or something like that. And so I'm in the middle of the sandwich because I'm getting the best value without sacrificing much in the way of lifestyle. Maybe not a lifestyle at all because Singapore is a bit more intense. Maybe you don't want that. But then I'm going up the chain for wealth management, let the people in the intense city manage your wealth, and then go down the chain for places that are up and coming to to, to get your bigger bets or the, you know, the, the the home runs potentially. And so you can do that anywhere in the world. But yeah, I mean, is Singapore the best place to meet your husband or your wife? You know, everything, every place has something that it's good at. So why don't we just get into a marriage with every place just because we're born there? Or just because we're a citizen there, let's take the best that every place has to offer
1: and and diversify. I love this idea of diversification. But at some point, especially as you became more settled, you realized that it probably didn't make sense for you to be in every major city or, you know, in a sense, to pursue every best thing where you're treated best because there were just so many possibilities. You pursued something called the trifecta strategy. Talk about mm. what that is and why that worked for you.
0: So the idea is, if you want to get the best of different cultures, you create a lifestyle where you live four months in three different places. I think I told myself it was more about finances, and hey, I, I'm happy to enjoy the financial benefits. But for me, it was I like spending time in Malaysia. I've got certain things that I love doing in Malaysia, and then you know I get to Malaysia for a while. You know what I'd like to live in Europe, and I've lived in different places in Eastern Europe. Right now, I'm spending some time in Dublin. An amazing place, obviously much more expensive, but I've always loved Ireland and the average people for 15 years. And eventually, you know, I, you know, I want to pop into Latin America. So, you know, when you're when you're in the middle stretch of this, I think a trifecta method is very good. So you say, I'm going to have a home in Kuala Lumpur or Singapore or Bangkok or Bali or whatever. I'm going to spend, spend four months there. Potentially, I can even do that as a tourist if I'm an American or a Canadian or what have you, and I can spend 90 days in Malaysia and I'll, I'll come twice in a year. They'll probably let me do that. I don't have to you know, get an investment visa. You know, Then I go to Colombia or Mexico, right? Mexico is six months. They may not give you six months anymore, but it's been six months you can stay. That might be a tourist visa. Or you just get a residence permit. It's not expensive. And then you pick somewhere in Europe. There's plenty of self-sufficient visas, digital nomad visas, et cetera, that you can live in Europe. But the idea was, when you want a little bit of everything, and by happenstance, it happens to be relatively tax-friendly because Colombia is not tax people who live there for four months a year, that's a good way to do it when you're not sure what you want to do. Now you can modify that and say, "Hey, Mexico is good for a month or two. Put more emphasis on Asia." You can, you know, adjust it as you go, but it's basically saying, "I want three places that I have a presence in." And it could be for personal reasons, and it could be, "Hey, I've got an office somewhere and I need to I need to pop in."
1: One thing I found very interesting when I was reading your book, The Nomad Capitalist, is this idea that, you know, it's not a great idea to have your base in somewhere like the U S or Canada or the UK, just because life is more restrictive, right? There's more taxes. It's a little bit more difficult, et cetera. But I also noticed that the caveat seems to be that a lot of these other countries over time, they also tend to get more restrictive too. So part of the issue I kept on seeing is you'd say things. And I think you just said this here is like, well, You can live there four months or six months, but it's getting harder to do that, et cetera, et cetera. If you are more of kind of the settled type and you can buy into this idea of, okay, I'm going to leave the United States because I was born here, but it's kind of restrictive. I'm going to set up something like this trifecta strategy. You know, is it possible that you will find over time the rules in those places get more restrictive? And is that something that you work into your plan, this idea that? okay, I may have to continue moving or continue readjusting that trifecta strategy.
0: Well, I think that people have misunderstood this at times as if, oh, you're always going to be running. I don't think I'm running from anything, right? If I want to live in one place, and I think maybe over time, I will be more focused on one place. For me, it was a matter of, I want to spend time in different places. And the same as when I left the US, I didn't entirely understand how it worked. I said, oh, where do I pay taxes if I'm not living here? All right. And so it kind of said, oh, okay, I can't escape the U.S. tax net, but I can use the foreign earned income exclusion. I can set up a foreign company and I can kind of put those two together. And, you know, I paid under $10,000 in many years zero legally. I followed all the rules and that's what I paid because I was never in the United States. There were some restrictions on that that I'm no longer subject to. But I was paying very little because I wasn't living in the U.S. I wasn't using the schools, the roads, the things that you're supposed to pay for. If I wanted to live in one place, I would have. There are plenty of places for the person who wants to be settled that are tax-free, like a UAE, Dubai, that are um, territorial tax, like a Malaysia or a Panama, where you only pay tax on local income, like a job or local investments, not foreign income. There are places where you pay a lump sum, like Italy, 100,000 euros, and then they leave you alone. Switzerland had that first. There's places that are non-dom. You pay only on the money you bring into the country. And so the more you make and the less you live on, I'm a pretty frugal guy. You know, you can make a million dollars and live in a hundred grand. You can do a pretty good job in some of these places. And, and you could do that if you just, if you don't want to travel. So I think that for me, it's a question of what lifestyle do you want and what's your process? I think that for me, the adventure was worth it. I met a lot of people, found a lot of interesting deals. I think you may become more sedentary as time goes on. To the point of countries evolve, changing, I mean, Jim Rogers, legendary investor, said, you know, the wise man would live in London in eighteen hundred. New York in 1900, and Asia, maybe Singapore in 2000, places change. If you look at the, the index of economic freedom, there's five or six countries that were communist in your lifetime that now have more economic freedom than the United States. Maybe by the time you know we're not here anymore, something will change again. But the nomad refers to the nomads on the step. They go with the herd, right? I mean, why do we just sit there? And when things start to suck, keep sitting there. <laughs> I mean, maybe things suck in five years. Maybe they suck in 100 years, right? But I mean, let's not sit and suck.
1: So one of the ways to protect yourself from sitting and suck is this idea of location diversity, which I think the No Bad Capitalist is a perfect example of how you can set up some diversity in your life. We always talk about investment diversity or business diversity, but diversification in a sense when it comes to location too also makes a big difference one of the things you argue for is not just living in other countries, but having a passport or becoming citizens of some of these countries. How many passports do yeah. you own currently?
0: It's about five passports. You never own your own passports. The government owns your passports, and that's why you need more than one. If they ask if they don't like you, they can take it back. <laughs> You're grounded
1: Tell me where so so own is having a passport the same thing as being a citizen of a country?
0: So a citizen's entitled to apply for a passport, all right? And you see some, you talk about restrictions. I mean, there's Western politicians in the UK or Canada. Justin Trudeau was saying, hey, if you're in that trucker's protest, maybe we'll, you know, put the scarlet letter on your passport. They can do that. And so obviously, if you're living in Canada, you're a Canadian. They don't view you as all the different citizenships. You're Canadian. But once you get out of Canada or the US or wherever you're from, then you can take advantage. And so from a travel perspective, listen, I always advise full compliance i'm a guy i don't want to get in trouble anywhere i always file the tax returns i always did everything but i also know that the government makes mistakes you know one time they thought that i didn't pay my taxes they cashed my check and i said they, they just didn't realize they cashed my check and then they started you know giving me a hard time and i just fight them and show them i paid them so that could that kind of thing could happen and they could suspend your passport because there was a mistake that kind of thing so you know, I, I, I advise full compliance, but I also realize things can change. Australians couldn't leave or enter their own country during the pandemic. That's in literal violation of all the international law and all the charters they talk about at the UN, that anyone's able to leave their own country and return to their own country. So on top of having that protection, you know, having a citizenship means it's the ultimate ability to live there. Asian countries, for example, don't really give out citizenship. They don't allow dual citizenship generally. I'm never going to become Malaysian. I can live here as a resident. I think they'll be very generous. Let me, you know, let people keep living here for decades to come because they're very open. But if you want to lock down the most secure way to live, you can get a passport through your family tree. Maybe it's in Europe. Maybe you're Italian. Now you can live anywhere in Europe. Now you've got, you know, close to 30 countries that when something happens, you want to lower your taxes there's a black swan event. One of them closes down. Who knows what happens? You've got a lot more options, and Europe is great in that regard. The Caribbean, you can donate your way to a passport, get it in a matter of months. Now you've got five different countries, sorry, six different countries you can live in. So if you're an American, you can live in one country. Now suddenly you're getting many more countries that basically have to take you in, and who knows what could happen that you'd want to go somewhere else. So having a residence permit gets you in, but having a citizenship makes it permanent, and you get the passport to travel on.
1: Yeah, interestingly enough, you know, you are a U.S. citizen. You can live in one country, but you can travel to almost everywhere. Whereas, one thing you were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, when you have your meetups, you do them in some place like Mexico instead of the United States. The other way around isn't necessarily the true the same. When you are a citizen of other countries, you can't necessarily travel to as many countries. Is that part of the reason why you ended up having five passports?
0: I think if I'm on, I mean. I believe in the diversification. If I'm being honest on the personal level, there's probably a sense of me, particularly in the, the countries that I spent time in and got the passport. There was a sense of longing for a home. right? I don't know it's St. Lucia, I got the St. Lucia passport. A lot of Americans have followed me on that. And I think they don't realize why I got it. I don't advise most Americans probably shouldn't get St. Get Lucia, but that's the one of the five in the Caribbean that I got. Um, I don't know that I ever looked at that as this is going to be my new home because I don't go to St. Lucia. But you know, some of the other ones I think filled an emotional need as well as a diversification need. And, and you know, I've made friends in some of those countries and that, and that feels nice. Certainly having what I call a passport portfolio of lesser quality passports is very good. One of the passports I have, I mean, it's been one of the best growing passports in the world in terms of adding countries. It's now a very good travel document. However, if you follow my model and you don't happen to have an Italian great grandparent or an Irish grandparent where you can get that European passport by descent, You're going to be kept out of the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and maybe a few other countries where you could easily get a visa. So that's why a lot of high net worth, ultra high net worth folks look at Malta's program. You you give them a million dollars, and I'm shortening the explanation, but in about 18 months, they'll give you and your family citizenship. And that's the same quality as the US. Plus, you'd have that ability of being an EU citizen to go and live in Ireland, to go and live in Spain, to go and live in Germany. And you could pass that down through the generations. So if you could afford a million dollars for citizenship, That's something a lot of people do because they want that high quality passport, especially if they're American and plan on leaving one day. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can tell you, we have plenty of people that have renounced U.S. citizenship. They don't want to go to the U.S., but they have one or two or three passports where they can go pretty much everywhere else.
1: We are talking to Andrew Henderson. He lives by five magic words. Go where you're treated best. He's a managing partner of Nomad Capitalist. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, This episode is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, if you're like me, you thought at one point in your life that having enough money would solve all of your problems. And guess what? It didn't for me, and it probably isn't for you. But you know what helps quite a bit? Therapy. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It definitely did for me, and when I used BetterHelp, I found that I was learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowered me to be the best version of myself, and it's not for just those people who've experienced major trauma. You might be like me. Maybe you got to the point where financially you were successful, and yet you still found that life's problems hadn't been all solved. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com earn today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash E-A-R-N. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Andrew Henderson. He is the managing partner of Nomad Capitalist, which helps people find the best places to live, bank, invest, incorporate, start a business, hire, date, and more. He is also the author of the book Nomad Capitalist. Andrew, let's talk about renouncing your citizenship. Why would someone renounce their citizenship in the United States?
0: The media talks about people renouncing for tax reasons, and certainly there are people who come to us and they say, "Hey, I'm tired of paying taxes." Americans are basically the only people. There's a few other occasional situations where you know they're they're the only citizens that have to pay tax no matter where they live. So if you're an American, I had a, a friend who went to work in Dubai. He had a job making a million dollars a year. He was able to take the foreign earned income exclusion of about 120 thousand dollars a year, and the rest he had to pay tax. Everyone else from all around the world that had Great jobs in this in this company he worked in, they live tax-free because Dubai does not have a personal income tax. The UAE does not. He had to pay the United States, never spent a single day there. And he had to file these, you know, complicated tax returns. And then if he wants to, you know, do a side hustle, he's got it's just very complicated. So I think a lot of people they look at the complication, especially when they live in a high-tax country. The tax systems don't even always match up and then end up paying a fortune in tax. I mean, what there was, a, there was a transition tax under Donald Trump where people in the U.K., it was in the, the newspapers in the U.K., they were, take, they were doing the worst possible things that no British person would ever do to pay this tax in the U.S. even though they didn't live there. So people do give it up for that reason, although I would suggest that if you love the U.S. and you want to visit your grandmother and you want to go over for Sunday dinner, you're probably not giving it up to save any amount of money. So I think it's bureaucracy. I think it's simplicity. I think it's sometimes just tax. Although I think it's more about just the paperwork, not the tax itself, because you can reduce the tax to a pretty small number with proper planning, especially if you're an entrepreneur. Uh, Some people, you know, they do it to protest policies. I've had people who are Bitcoin and cryptocurrency investors who just think, I'm going to get sucked into a regulatory maelstrom. I don't want anything to do with it. I've had people who can't invest in certain stocks or certain mutual funds or certain crypto deals. And so they're losing money. It's not about the tax. They're happy to pay the tax, but they can't invest in what they want to make money. I have other people who they run businesses in other countries, and the laws of those countries make it very difficult for them to be compliant in the U.S. where they're a citizen. And, you know, occasionally someone just wants to protest the Vietnam War. So I think those are probably the reasons. And I think for me, the reason was just, you know what, I don't really need to go there. I find the policies offensive. I do live in a certain amount of fear having to fill out the paperwork because I want to be compliant. And there's so many things to fill out, especially when you have the level of accounts and companies that I do. I just don't feel like I'm an American. I haven't since I was a teenager. And so why hold that? I mean, for me, it was almost a relief to get rid of it and say, you know what? Maybe I could visit one day as a tourist if they want me, but I'll at least go knowing it's not my country. There was something cathartic about that.
1: The one thing that became clear after reading your story about renouncement is the one thing you can't do is renounce in order to skip paying taxes on income you've already earned. Oh yeah. Or on 401k plans, et cetera. You actually have to pay in a sense to renounce. Is that correct?
0: Well, there's a there's a fee of $2,350 and they quintupled it uh a couple of years ago. And before that it was zero. Right. So it's uh, it's a very expensive, you know, couple of hours. They've got a, they, they put in there, listen, they were very professional with me. I have nothing bad to say about them. Very nice people. But on top of that, yeah, I mean, if you've got either a high salary or a net worth over a couple million dollars, or you haven't been filing your taxes while you were a U.S. citizen, any of those could trigger an exit tax. So generally, you know, you can, you can get into tax compliance. You can wait long enough to lower your income uh, that was taxed, you know, in the U.S. If you're overseas, you can fix that. Uh, the big one for most people is the net worth. And so they're going to say, hey, listen, whatever assets you have when you renounce, we're going to have an exit tax, which means whatever capital gains you have not paid on yet, we're going to tax you. So we've had people, guys started a company, it became worth like $100 million. He couldn't afford to renounce because he had proof that his company was worth $100 million because he had investors. He owned like I don't know, 60%, something like that. But guys had bought in with the most recent valuation being $100 million. The company had the money. His shares are worth that. But he doesn't have the cash to say he started it for zero. Now it's 100 million. His share is 60 million. Where's the $15 million in tax? He, owes? he can't renounce. He has to sell more shares. It just becomes a, a cycle, right? So, you know, now if he sold the company for 100 million, paid the tax, and just had the cash sitting in the bank, they don't tax you again. But they say whatever you accumulated while you're an American, you can't just leave and not pay us because if you don't leave, you'll pay us eventually. So if you're going to leave, just pay us now.
1: So I want to talk about some of the specific financial issues regarding being a nomad capitalist, why some people may pursue this lifestyle. But before we do, let's talk about some other things. You know, there, there are a slew of topics you talk about in the book that are outside of the financial arena, right? This idea of how difficult it is, for instance, to build relationships and get married as a nomad capitalist. Um, how difficult is it to visit family? Things like how hard is it to get health care? I don't want to go through each one specifically, but did you find that life, these issues that people have with traveling and being outside the United States, did you find that it was easier than you thought it would be?
0: I think whatever you want to do, whatever you want to set your mind to, is easy enough. You know, I think for me, moving out of a country where you're familiar with, you're going to have to be intentional. And so, if you live in the, your hometown and you have 20 or 30 quote-unquote friends, you don't have 20 or 30 good friends. I mean, very few people do. And so it forces you to be intentional and make relationships with folks who you only want to make relationships with. Now, the problem in my case, I made a list recently, like, who are my closest friends? and I had about 12 pretty good friends, which I you know, think for being in my late 30s is a testament to how this can work. But here's the problem. They're in nine different cities. And so only one of them is in Kuala Lumpur. We don't spend that much time together. So I'm kind of here when I'm in Malaysia. I'm just doing my own thing. I'm using this as my recharging time. I'm getting stuff done. I'm, I'm meditating. Maybe someone comes to visit occasionally. But you, know, you start to realize, and everyone who's an expat or a nomad says this, you realize who really cares. I've had family. I've had friends. I just had a friend recently. He's gotten on more 12 to 15-hour nonstop flights out of where you're from, Chicago. He's gotten on more of these flights to come and see me in exotic locales over the last five or six years. That's a good friend. And yet I've had many folks in the US, they don't even talk to me anymore because, oh, you're not here. We can't be friends. So I think that you see who your real friends are and you build good ones.
1: So let's transition to talk about some of the more financial aspects. I'm just going to run through a series of questions here. Why bank offshore? It's something you spend a lot of time talking about in the book, The Nomad Capitalist.
0: Higher interest rates, stronger banks, you uh, can hold different currencies. I mean, there's you know, there's times of strong dollar, there's times of weak dollar. So it gives you more access. If you're in the United States, you want to make an investment overseas. You don't you want to be able to build up you know euro holdings to be able to get that golden visa or to get that Malta citizenship or to get that you know second home that you're going to diversify with. You want to buy the euro when it's at parity with a dollar, not when it goes way back up. You can't really do that in the U.S. There's no bank in the top fifty. Maybe there's one some years, but very rarely are there any banks in the in the United States that are in the top 50 strongest banks in the world. All three big banks in Singapore are in the top 15 or so. And so are Canadian, so are Australian. They're pretty high up there. But if you're in the U.S., you're going to get better interest rates, better service, more international exposure overseas.
1: What does that mean when you say top 50 banks? Because most people, when they think about U.S. banks, they say, well, these are pretty safe. Like, I'm not worried about my money disappearing. You know, we talk about this idea of a run on the bank, but it's not something most yeah. people think of as a part of the reality. What does it mean to be a strong bank or to be a top fifty bank?
0: Well, it means you've got a strong balance sheet. It means you're, you know, not making a bunch of garbage loans. I mean, there's way there's of those banks that don't make loans at all. They just hold your money and you pay them a fee and you can wire it out. And some people like that. Yeah, you know, listen, there are people in this industry, who think the US dollar, it's lost 90% of its purchasing power, but they, they think it's going to lose another 97% tomorrow. That's ridiculous. They think you know some big bank in the US is just going to go out of business. That's ridiculous. But guess what? I mean, the US has more bank failures in a year than pretty much every other country combined. I don't think Austria or Singapore or Andorra, I mean, they've had one bank failure in their entire existence. So if you're with a big bank in the US, maybe you're all right. To some extent, but they're still not as strong as a bank, for example, in Singapore. They still do more risky things. And, you know, if you believe that eventually, look at what happened in Cyprus, look what happened in Poland, look what happened in many countries where times got really bad. And hey, you know what? You're taking a haircut because you're the rich guy. If you've got a big sum of money, that's what they could do. I think politicians in the West don't care about you. If you have more money than you need, they're going to come down on you. They're not going to let the FDIC just come in and, you know, you know, save everybody with a lot of money. They'll save the people with not a lot of money. And if you've got a lot, then you're screwed.
1: So we've talked about banking and the reason to consider doing offshore. What about starting a business outside of the United States? I mean, a lot of people grew up feeling like the United States, Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, that's a place to start a business. That's a place to be involved in tech. Why look outside the U.S.?
0: I think it depends on what you want to do. If you're young, And you can go to a frontier market. It's like, I remember Howard Stern used to talk about every week or every month in radio and records, they had an ad for the radio station in Nome, Alaska. They were desperate. They'll give you whatever you want. And you can build your your resume there. You can do that starting a business in some frontier market. And I, I know people who are in Africa, for example. I mean, they're making money hand over fist because there's no competition. Very simple businesses. So if you're young, that may be something to consider. If you are a bit more seasoned, Maybe you're starting some kind of business that lives in the cloud, which is what we have. You don't have to be in any particular location. Why would you start that business in a high-tax, high-regulation country when you could start it again? Dubai or Hong Kong which was maybe more popular years ago or anywhere else, right? The Cayman Islands. And then you get a residence permit to move to Dubai or the Cayman Islands or wherever else. I mean, why would you pay more than you have to? And then I look at people who are you know more serious I and mean, they have multiple different businesses, um, and it's nice to diversify that portfolio. So I'm not saying don't do any business in the United States. I have, you know, investments in the US, but I'll tell you, I had real estate investments in the US. They were the hardest things to manage out of all the real estate they owned anywhere in the world. Just so, and you get a you'd get a a letter, criminal violation, it would say, and you'd open it up. It's like, oh, you didn't you didn't cut the grass, send a hundred dollars. And the lawyer would say, Yeah, they try and scare you.
1: You mentioned real estate investments and you've also mentioned crypto, which we don't talk about a lot on this podcast, but there are certain types of investments that are just harder in the United States. What types of things, what type of investments are better overseas?
0: Well, I think crypto is one of them. I mean, look at what's happened just in the last few weeks with the SEC. I mean, they basically said, we want to go after every crypto as an unregulated security. Listen, I, uh, I believe capitalism requires ethics. And I can tell you, we've gotten approached by people who've done some unethical stuff. They do some ICO or some pump and dump. I'm not in favor of that. We need ethics and capitalism or else it doesn't work. But there's plenty of honest projects that it's very hard. Regulation is tough. And so if you live in a country, here's my view on, on a country like the United States. It's a marketing campaign. It's Coca-Cola. People go into the store. I go in here. They've got salt cola. If there's Coca-Cola and there's salt cola, are you going to ever get the salt cola? You're going to be really adventurous to get the salt cola when Coca-Cola and Pepsi and everything else are next to it. The United States is Coca-Cola. That was it the best option. I don't know. Maybe not. But people think it's the best option. And so therefore, the government gets it in its head. Hey, people are going to come whatever we do. So we don't need to be innovative. We don't need to be open. You know, let the suckers go. Maybe McDonald's is the better option. The food's not that great. You're not going to die. It's not the worst thing ever, but there's a lot better hamburgers out there, but everyone knows McDonald's and they go there. It's a McDonald's and how much they have to innovate. Right. And I kind of think that's what it is. If you're doing something innovative, you want to go to a smaller country. That's like, Oh, this is how we can get on the map. We can be the biggest place for
1: this. So when it's all said and done, you've now been living this lifestyle for many years. Is there anything you miss about being a U.S. citizen?
0: I, you know, I, I get nostalgic every once in a while. And I think that you start to look at it with rose colored glasses. You know, I, I was in the broadcasting industry. I still remember all the different radio stations. I was a real radio junkie. And I, I occasionally I go back and I listen to old air checks of radio stations and I, you know, i look at houses for sale. But overall, I, I first of all, you can't live your life with regret. Second of all, no, I, I I think that you leave for a reason and you have to stick with that reason. For me, I mean, adding something like an Ireland into the mix gives you more of the culture that you're used to, gives you more of the language you're used to. It's nice to go and you get to have more banter with the waiters than you might have somewhere else. So you get more of that that home. And you can do that, by the way. I think Ireland is a tremendously underrated place um, that people can go to. And it's more financially friendly than most people would imagine. So... I don't think that I do. I have friends who come and visit me. I talk to friends from there. I mean, you can still buy products from the U.S. You can still work with U.S. customers. You know, I didn't want to live there before. I didn't feel comfortable. And so we can always, you know, occasionally second guess ourselves. But I think we, we make decisions for a reason.
1: I know there's no answer to this question. And as I was reading your book, I was heavily voting here for and cheering for Mexico. But even though yeah. I know there's no answer to this one, If you or someone sitting in the United States right now, is there a country that's best if you're thinking about either citizenship somewhere else or looking at permanent residence? Where's the best place to either have a have a, a second passport or permanent residence in?
0: Well, I would look at separating those two potentially, at least until you find a place that you really love, right? So if you say, I go to Ireland and I fall in love with it, and I just would love to be a citizen, and that doesn't affect your financial or other reasons, then you can do that. But I would say, get a citizenship for citizenship's sake and live for living's sake. Permanent residence is a technical term. You might have a temporary residence. You might be on a, in Malaysia, there's an MM2H, there's a premium. There's many different terms for residence. I think good places to live, Mexico has, despite the different language, a somewhat similar culture, the service, the vibe, the warmth. That's probably comfortable for a lot of folks. A lot of Americans have moved there. I've been saying it since you know Trump was running. If he wins, don't move to Canada, move to Mexico. And people thought it was ridiculous. Now they're all moving. I think Malaysia, if you like Asia, is surprisingly underrated as well. Great healthcare. You mentioned healthcare earlier, probably one of the best hospitals in the world, just on the street from me. Prince Court Hospital, English speaking, maybe not as well as you would in the U.S. or, or in Ireland, a little bit different English, amazingly underrated, tax friendly. Um, you know, Ireland has popped on my radar. You know, I think there's some places in Eastern Europe, if you want that kind of rugged personal freedom that is gone in the United States these days, Serbia and Georgia and those countries. Um, so, I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. We had during the pandemic people who said, I don't want to deal with any of this pandemic stuff. I don't want, I don't, I want nothing to do with it. And then if they added in tax savings, then it became a pretty short list of places. It depends on what you're looking for. Again, Ireland and Mexico are very different places, but they both can be very good. And I would say you're not going to get Irish citizenship unless you've got an Irish grandparent. You're not going to get Mexican citizenship until you live there for a certain period of time. You're never going to get Malaysian citizenship, but you can get a Caribbean citizenship. That's probably the cheapest, easiest way to do it. And then Malaysia doesn't care if you're American or St. Lucian.
1: Who is this lifestyle bad for? I mean, they're... Obviously, as, as I'm reading the book, as I'm listening to you, there's a, a definite archetype of a person who I could see doing this. Mm-hmm. Who do you think would not do well with this lifestyle?
0: You know, we had a gentleman once, he was a young guy, and he just couldn't get over the fact. I mean, he did go to a Sunday dinner every week with his grandma. I talked to my grandma, and I probably talked to her more than most people in our family because we've got a very Protestant family. We're not super, you know, super close, but we talk on Facebook. And she likes that. He couldn't do it because he really needed that up close and personal thing. He just couldn't imagine not doing that. I would push back and who can't do it. I don't have kids, but I look at it and I say, to me, a lot of people with kids use the kids as an excuse. I know plenty of people who have kids. Again, you don't have to travel all around the world. Even then, I know people who have given birth overseas to get their kids a second citizenship at birth. You give birth in Costa Rica or Mexico or Brazil, and you get citizenship for the kid by default. And they travel and it works and they homeschool. So if you're someone who likes to homeschool, that can work. I mean, I suppose if you just believe in the status quo and you said, my kids need to go to this school, I still think you can find a great international school anywhere in the world. But if you're just so addicted to this is how my family did it, my parents did it, my grandparents did it, we have to go to the same school. You know, I hear Warren Buffett, whom I love, all of his kids like, and he, they all graduated from the same high school in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have some, some fantasy about that, obviously this ain't working. But for me, I think it's about saying what used to work may not be what works now. And I'll tell you what I've been really ruminating on recently is you can't have romance. When people when I tell people Dublin Ireland, they say, but the weather's terrible. I said, first of all, I've had enough good weather. I'd like to wear some of my suits that my tailor, my great tailor made me. But you know what? Spain sounds nice. A lot of the wives, they all want to go to Spain. You can't get anything done in Spain. So the romance of Spain or Italy wears off. I don't chase romance at this point, point. and I think that the romance of let's all go to the same high school. What does that? What does that do for you? Right? I, I. I think some. I, so I. I don't know who it's not for because any. Any excuse. I mean, I think this is what makes an entrepreneur. Oh, I can't do because I have kids. Wait a second. Like lots of kids live overseas. Lots of kids live in other countries. They go to school. What if you're a diplomat? What do you do? You travel every three or four years. You move somewhere new, sometimes to some pretty crazy places. I, I I think pretty much anyone can do it if they want to. We have 80-year-olds, by the way, doing this.
1: Hmm. So, Andrew, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. You know, I take a few things from this conversation. One is I think basically fear keeps us from doing some of the things we really want to do in life. And it's a mighty big world out there. And... If you are into this concept of go where you are treated best, there are certainly many places outside of the U.S. that you could find in which you could connect with some of that lifestyle you really like. The other part of it is that ultimately we spend so much time talking about diversifying our income streams and diversifying our assets, but we don't talk a lot about diversifying our location or citizenship or residence. And for many reasons that we didn't talk about, but you laid out in the book it's not a bad idea to actually diversify, not just in where your income comes from, but where you live and where you belong and where you could, I hate to say, escape to if it ever became necessary. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can find you. So what is coming up next in your life?
0: I think I'll continue to hone you know, as I cede more control of my company to some, some smart people that we've built up in some very exotic countries and that we've brought in from the U.S. and elsewhere. I think I'll spend less time traveling. I enjoy watch them, watching them travel. I enjoy tracking their 15-hour flights mm-hmm. and being, to a certain extent, glad it's no longer me and I'm doing less of that. I think I'll spend a little bit more time in a place like in Ireland, where there's a bit more of a connection with the the culture now that the sense of adventure has been very much fulfilled. Probably a little bit less travel. Certainly more you know, philanthropic stuff. I'm already doing more of that. And just watching people grow what I've built. And so I think that you can approach this however you want. You can do this for five years and decide it's not for you. You can build the pieces of this and get the residences, the passports, the bank accounts, and never move and just be ready. And maybe you never have to. So there's no right or wrong way to do it. But for me, it's it's been different stages. And I think it'll probably be a little bit more settled version in the coming years.
1: And if people want to learn more about the Nomad Capitalist lifestyle, what's the best way to get in touch with you?
0: I think the best way to start is to read the book. We recently updated it. So now the new version has my picture on the cover. You can just look on Amazon, Nomad Capitalist. And I think it's a great entree. You could you could read 2,000 blog posts. You could watch over 2,000 videos we've done. But the book lays it out with some anecdotes and stories you won't find anywhere else to where you understand what which parts are for you and which parts may not be. Uh, we're on YouTube, 2,000 plus videos. We're on nomadcapitalist.com. You can read articles. And if you would like to work with us and you are a, a seven or eight figure entrepreneur or investor, then we work with a limited number of folks who so I think we're the, probably one of the only companies, if not the only company, that pretty much knows all the programs. You know, they closed one of the golden visas that Americans do recently. And a lot of folks are scrambling because that's all they had to offer. We have 100 residence and citizenship programs we've done. And so how do you make those work together? If you're an American, that's tough, because if you make an investment, if you open a bank account, if you open a company, stuff that other people in other countries may not think is a big deal, the IRS, the Treasury, they want to know about that. And so how do you put the five, six, 10 different advisors that you need together and have them managed so that you don't have to? That's what we do for those folks.
1: You've been listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Andrew Henderson, thank you for coming on today. It's been a great pleasure. That's a wrap. Earn and invest is now part of the airwave media podcast network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to this show as well as other fine podcasts. All right. I usually Go go ahead i was just gonna say i usually keep things running to catch any of kind of our chatter after the show uh it's kind of oh. an after show
0: all right where in chicago are you
1: so i live in evanston which is right outside of chicago yep. where northwestern is and i kind of was born and raised here um it's like skokie is,
0: right it's up there
1: skokie is close yeah it's not far at all yeah. and so i just
0: in my list in naperville sorry
1: I've definitely considered at least somewhat diversifying, uh, by spending some time in Mexico every year, which I think we'll do. Our kids are 18 and 15, so they're getting towards college age. Um, and I'm not really tied to any kind of work because most of what I do is virtual or online. So we're definitely yeah. thinking of, of looking at possible permanent residents or temporary residents there and, and spending some time there. It's pretty easy in Mexico from what I understand.
0: The residents. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm not quite as involved in the strategic side anymore, but, you know, when I when I kind of stepped into that in November, yeah, I mean, they're really cracking down on people going as tourists. I think even Americans, they're like, how long are you coming? It used to be you could live there, come for six no months, leave, for come back. Nobody can. Now they're really... And then imagine, I mean, they don't give my staff a hard time. They kind of give me a hard time because they're like, they think like, I don't know, they think you want to go to the US. They stop a number of people and like kind of interrogate them for like thinking that you want to cross over. Uh... So, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, it's pretty easy temporary residence to get. Uh, yeah. And if you're 65, which you're, you know, but like my parents got permanent residence, so they kind of skipped the stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I heard from, from what I know and a few people have done it that really they're more worried about your net worth than anything else. So if you have a decent net worth, um, getting permanent residence is actually pretty easy.
0: Oh, well, right. Yeah, you can do that. And there's like a real estate way, which I think we found to be kind of confusing and needless. But I think Latin America is more about income. Asia is more about wealth. Um, but yeah, I guess that permanent residence does have a does have a, an asset component to it. But generally in Latin America, it's just, do you have monthly income? And it could be a pension. It's pretty easy in most countries to prove.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for doing this. Um, it definitely is a lifestyle. I think people dream or thought about but a lot of people haven't pursued so to hear you lay it out to read it in the book and to hear you talk about it makes it seem much more possible and real and I think um there are a lot of people out there who either you know have kids and ready to travel don't have kids or now are at a little bit of an older age and kind of like, well what is holding me here um and so it's yeah. a, it's good to kind of expose people to this idea that it's out there and it's possible and there's some real benefits.